Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is David French, attorney and author and currently senior editor at The Dispatch. His new book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. Welcome to Free Thoughts, David. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, given the timeline of writing and publishing a book, I assume you started writing this before our ongoing national nightmare that is 2020, which makes it somewhat prescient to some extent. But what what initially made you want to write the book? And has 2020 ramped up the timeline? Well, it was kind of a slow pro. Uh, uh, it was a slow build. Um, so I can't, I served in Iraq in 07, 08, and I and I came back to the U.S. at the end of 08, and right when sort of this most recent era of polarization started to, for those who sort of could, who for those who could sort of lift themselves out of the news cycle and see some of the larger trends emerging in American life, you really began to see that, wait a minute, it feels like there's something about this round of polarization that feels pretty profound. And so I started to keep an eye on it all the way back in like 09, 2010, 2011, 2012. I mean, which is not that when you say all the way back, it sounds like all the way back in 1940. No, <laughs> you know, about a decade or so ago. And I, I really started to see this coming. And a lot of other people started to see this coming as well. And what I began to realize is that there are certain trends in place that are kind of locking us into de increasing polarization and not just political, religious, cultural, even like geographic, of course, yeah, even like athletic, like our, our likes and dislikes in sports. And so by about 2016, 2017, 2018, I, it was such a, um, it really became part of my my writing on a regular basis. And then, you know, last year when I wrote the book, when I started writing the book and I finished it this year, everything just seemed to start to accelerate. Is it the same polarization that we're seeing? Because 2009 thereabouts was the Tea Party. Um, and now we have the polarization of Trump and kind of nationalist populism versus everyone else. But those feel at least rhetorically different. So is it is it the same, like the same trend line of polarization and the same sides? Or are these new sides, like a shift in sides? Well, I think what it is, is you realize what, what we saw between the transition from Tea Party, small government, constitutional conservative to uh, nationalist, populist, who cares about deficits, um, use the power of the state for the common good. What the through line there that what you really realize, and this is very, very important from a polarization standpoint, the what you realize was the the real motivator is not the ideology of, say, the Tea Party or the ideology of national populism. It's the negative partisanship of opposing Democrats. And whatever works most effectively to oppose Democrats is then therefore what you bandwagon onto. And so, you know, when Obama was spending a ton of money on on uh, a, a stimulus bill, I, I, well, we say ton of money now, it seems quaint, a quaint amount of money compared to like coronavirus for relief, for example. But when Obama was spending a ton of money on um, on uh, uh, stimulus and he was expanding government control of healthcare, the way negative partisanship worked was, hey, smaller government, less intrusion. And, that, and so was it really, I, I think there are a lot of people for whom smaller government and less intrusion was a principled through line and remained so to this day, or was it, this is how we oppose Obama? And- and I feel like uh, one of the central realities of negative, negative partisanship is that we end up overestimating the ideology of either party and underestimating the, the animosity of either party towards the other. And that's the real through line is the animosity. The ideology is sort of the instrument that gets you into power, the instrument that sort of motivates. In the, it's the instrument of the moment, but the, the true through line, the true powerful force that we're seeing is that negative partisanship, that I'm a Republican, not so much because I love Republican ideas, which are malleable and variable, but because I dislike Democrats and vice versa. One of the interesting parts of the introduction for your book is, I wouldn't call it a mea culpa exactly, but a kind of 
personal history where you discuss how you kind of were more part of this than you became now, especially today. But that includes uh, encountering some of the more extremist elements of the Republican Party, such as birthers. Um, did, did that kind of growth of those extremist elements sneak up on you to some extent? Yeah, they did. I, you know, they did sneak up on me. And, and this is where some of li- listeners might say, well, how'd they sneak up on you? <laughs> how blind were you? But yeah, they did sneak up on me. Um, you know what? I think the thing that took me by surprise, and because it's it's interesting that uh, y'all mentioned the Tea Party earlier, because I was a lawyer for dozens of Tea Party groups back in the day of the Obama targeting scandal. Um, I was part of the legal team that that represented dozens of these groups. And so, you know, I was in meeting after meeting after meeting behind closed doors with Tea Party leaders, uh, grassroots Tea Party folks. And you would have thought, man, that movement was all about Hayek. (laughs) You know, that that movement was all about rediscovering the founders. That movement was all about the Constitution. And a lot of other people sort of outside the Tea Party were saying, no, there's there's some darker elements here to this there's and i'm and i'm saying no there's not no 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 you don't know you don't know like i know i know the leadership i know the people who are really driving this and this is you know in some ways you always every movement has sort of its share of edge figures um but this was a movement motivated by um and if you'd put me under a lie detector test in 2013 2014 2012 this is a movement motivated by genuine desire to return to constitutional governments governance and uh i mean it wasn't the tea party wasn't libertarian strictly but heavily libertarian influenced in many ways and and then all of a sudden it just kind of goes away (laughs) and what stays though, because there was always this element of anger in the Tea Party. There was always there was this sort of the the joy of you know any emerging movement, but there was also this element of anger. And what kind of went away, and what you began to see was this element of anger, and this this um, anger that was deeply um, an, uh, animating an awful lot of people, and and where Trump could then be an instrument of that anger. And a vehicle for that anger, he got a lot of um, he he got a lot of of support, even from Tea Party affiliated people. Uh, and then that anger began to turn, it began to just spiral in many ways. I think out of control. But it's important that this book is not a book about blame, or at least maybe no. it blame maybe it blames the hyperpartisans on both sides, which is a relatively. But it's not about blaming one side or the other, um, which. I think, you know, people might say, oh, David French, you know, committed conservative. He's going to write a book that says, let me explain to you why the left is tearing America apart. Like the basically the, the Norm Ornstein or something where, you know, just flip it around. Uh, but no, you, the, the point you're making is, is a bit different and, and bipartisan in some sense. Yeah, this is not the own the libs book of the month. Um, <laughs> and it's not the, you know, it's not the resistance book of the month, you know, going against the Trump administration. It's saying that. There are huge trends that are driving us apart, huge trends. And they, they're not related to the last news cycle, although each news cycle exacerbates those trends. And the trends are so big that what's ending up happening is we're walling off from each other geographically. We're walling off from each other religiously. We're walling off from each other politically. We're walling off from each other in our pop culture and our sports. And so that what ends up happening is you have sort of a red narrative about American life and you have a blue narrative about American life. And that red narrative and that blue narrative are oh, both of them are rooted in a lot of grievance. And the thing is, a lot of those grievances are real. Like they're, they're relating to real things that happened. And, it, and one thing I say in my book is it reminds me a lot of the Sunni Shia divide in Iraq, thankfully not in intensity because <laughs> that was, <laughs> you know, violently, violently, viciously, murderously intense on a day-to-day basis, but in the nature of it. And one of the things that I found so profoundly disturbing and difficult about dealing with the Sunni-Shia divide in the, in the area where we, my unit worked and operated and fought in Iraq was the extent to which it was not based on, Hey, if Sunni and Shia can agree on a division of power in the parliament and division of oil revenues or, uh, they can agree on tax rates or 
you know, uh, uh, religious autonomy for their various institutions and we can settle all this. No, it was so far beyond that. It was your cousin killed my nephew or your uncle killed, you know, uh, my brother. And it was related in grievance. And you see a lot of that now in our politics. So, for example, someone will say, I will never even the Democrats have to never get into office. Did you see what they did to Kavanaugh or did you see what they did? Uh, into Covington Catholic, or do you see how their hate spawned that attack on a baseball field and those Republican congressmen and Democrats flip it around and they say, this movement, look at all the hate it's inspiring from the Santa Fe shooting to the Poway Synagogue to Tree of Life to, and then, you know, each side has this record of grievances of of efforts at political destruction and, and personal destruction. And it creates this fury and this anger that isn't it's often in, unrelated to underlying policy disputes is there an origin story or i suppose an origin point for this partisanship because it didn't it didn't start with the tea party and then get worse from there we saw it and we saw the the growing cultural divide before that as well yeah you no know, i think i think some of this was just going to be flat out inevitable and and the reason i say that is that um after so, you know, the United States of America has always sort of gone through cycles of division and unity. Um, I mean, we've had many, we've had, you know, many moments of national strain beyond just 1861 to 1865. So we kind of deal relatively uh, frequently from a historical standpoint of strains to the system. And I think what, there's sort of a macro reality that we are going to have to struggle to deal with. And that is once the, the massive centralization of the federal government uh, came about as a result of sort of three consecutive, if not existential, almost existential perceived threats. So you had the great depression, which just was a crushing economic blow um, followed by world war II, followed by the cold war. And the answer that was sort of generated to each one of those three things in, in, in turn was, we need big, united, centralized governmental responses to deal with these things. And so we sort of got into the habit of this big, centralized government. Then the Cold War ends, and we don't have we're, – we're the, we're the hyperpower. We're not just a superpower. We're a hyperpower. But at the same time that um, that existential threat goes away, that's kind of this unifying force, we also are just getting increasingly different. Our, we're growing more diverse. We're growing more diverse on on uh, cultural grounds, religious grounds, um, racial grounds. We're just getting more diverse. At the same time, we're super centralized, and all of these things. Even if we were sort of like a had a healthy body politic, all of these things would be disruptive, and all of these things would be. You know, you would have this clustering into like-minded enclaves, and that clustering of like-minded enclaves would result in a little bit more extremism and it would just be challenging to deep centralization. And so this is a point that I make in the book is that increasing diversity of views, of race, of religion isn't compatible with increasing centralization of government. And that creates, it raises the stakes of elections unacceptably. And then when you lay on top of those sort of natural inevitable problems you have in a continent-sized, multi-ethnic, multi-faith democracy with a big, big central government, you lay on top of it some of the low and tawdry way in which politicians have tried to govern this place <laughs> and, and some of the failures and deficiencies in the political and cultural class, and it just cascades. It seems to me that we... We have, especially the boomer generation, which I'm not as much one. Aaron is much more boomers are the fault of all bad things on the planet. But in the boomer generation, <laughs> there was a time when – so we had a Cold War that had at least created some national unity in terms of a goal that the whole country has. And then we also had a very, very – the first, we had the emergence of mainstream media, but there were only three channels and four if you count PBS, I guess. Um, and there was mainstream radio and there were mainstream movies. So there were a ton of unifying factors that actually were aberrant in the scope yeah. of American history. Um, and so now it's like we have to relearn 
how to be as diverse as we maybe were in like 1880 or 1830. Um, and we have a bunch of boomers who, who have no concept of this. Um, so, and, you know, we see many times they're the ones who go down the weird rabbit holes on social media, share, you know, BS memes and things like this. So we're trying to relearn how to be diverse in the way that we've always been, but with a bigger, more centralized government. Yeah, you raise a really good point. We did have this moment, this really kind of artificial moment where you 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 thought of there is a mainstream media and it is the umpire, right? Um, and the Walter Cronkite is the umpire. The three the three big network anchors are the umpire. These the if you whatever co- uh, community you lived in, you had a flagship paper and it was like the umpire. Um, so you were going to have a mainstream media that was supposed to be reliable and unbiased and uh, high with high ethics. Uh, at the same time, you only have a few channels. So, you know, I'm old. I'm older Gen X. Uh, so I'm old enough to remember every, you know, the whole concept of water cooler television. I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when ABC did the movie The Day After, uh, which was this. If you watch it now, you know, it's cheesy special. You can't get past the cheesy special effects of nuclear war. But when you watched it at the time, it was like the most terrifying thing. (laughs) And I remember going to school and every single person at school is talking about the day after. So you have this shared cultural experience. You have this shared um, journalistic, journalistic experience. We're all working from the same documents. We're all working from the same news anchors. And we don't realize how aberrational that was. I mean, one of the fundamental realities of American media for a long time has been the partisan press. Um, And if you go back to the Civil War, I mean, the partisan press played a big role in stoking up the fear, the fear and the anger and the resentment that touched off, you know, violently at Fort Sumter. And we're re- it seems like we're returning to an era of partisan press, um, but doing it sort of kicking and screaming and not really realizing what we're doing. <laughs> and, um, and so that, that results in a lot of confusion about who the media is supposed to be, what the media is supposed to do, um, a real sense, as you were saying, in say, the baby boomer generation of an unmooring that this is not the way things are supposed to be. Um, and it's it's confusing to a lot of people. It's enraging to a lot of people. And it's contributing to our division. What role does status play in all of this? Because one of the things that we've seen happen since, say, the 1950s or 60s um, to today is a relative increase in the status of, in the social status of younger people, of immigrants, of sexual minorities, um, of different racial groups, of the left versus a decline in the status of, I guess, being a white male working class person doesn't really bring you kind of a level of default status in the way that it used to. And it does feel like a lot of what we're seeing right now is status anxiety turned into anger and hate for people of rising status. Well, yeah. And there's also changing in what are, what you might call acceptable prejudices. So, you know, for a long time in American history, um, and, you know, if you're looking at the 1950s and the 1960s and sort of like the heyday of like the, the white working class union worker who was going to have a well-paying job at the steel mill or at the car man at the car plant, and his sons could have that job as well. Um, that was also an era of time that was laden with acceptable prejudices and bigotries. Just ask, you know, uh, the marginalized American communities like African Americans, um, you know, like you know immigrant workers. Um, this was a point in time when the law was sort of absolute and uniform, and LGBT communities were almost entirely closeted. So this was an era in which there were a lot of ex- what you'd call acceptable prejudices that became unacceptable, thankfully. And then, but to some extent, there was a rise of a different kind of acceptable prejudice. And that was sort of an acceptable prejudice that was sort of seen against like maybe the, you know, the white working class rural guy um, 
where since there, there wasn't just a sense of loss of status, uh, of loss of primacy, but combined with a loss uh, even of the sort of the default sense that we're respected, if that makes sense. And so I think a lot of people who say, well, um, white working class voters couldn't handle the loss of primacy. But I think in some ways, the ways acceptable prejudices worked in a work in American culture and society is it, it went beyond just a loss of primacy, even into sort of being victims of one of the few acceptable prejudices left and which compounds. I mean, loss of primacy is a jolting experience for any population, even if it is just even if it's just that this subgroup of Americans should be uh, should not be uh, in a primal a primate, you know, a position of primacy um, that when you combine that jolt with a real perception of injustice, that is now we're the victims of acceptable bigotry and you combine that and overlay it with a religious element as well, that is it now acceptable to be bigoted against Christianity? Um, you really ra- ramp up, I think, the intensity. Okay. Story time. Um, <laughs> so, so I, I, I mean, I, I liked your book a lot and we're, very much on the same page and especially this year me and friends have been talking about imagine american secession uh and there's a there's a famous well he, well he pointed me to an essay by a soviet dissident who died in a car accident whose name escapes me right now but he wrote an essay about in the 70s about imagining the soviet union falling falling which seemed unimaginable then he said the way you do it is you i go to the end point and then take a step back that's like reasonable to get to that end point, and then take a step back, and then take a step back, and like, and, and each one seems more likely. Which sort of that's what you did in this book with essentially a speculative fiction middle section where you imagine how different types of secession could happen. So, uh, without going into you know, as much detail as you do in the book, but but the, the Cal exit is the first one you talk about. Uh, how could that? feasibly happen in our polarized world. Well, you know, to back up a minute, uh, the the thing that really started to get me alarmed about the possibility of their nation splitting wasn't the level of political violence. It wasn't the level of, uh, it wasn't even the level of sort of fringe secessionary movements. It was looking at a a core reality that existed in 1776 and existed in 1860, 1861 that is beginning to exist in 2020 which is geographically contiguous, significant groups of Americans who believe that their core culture and civil liberties are under attack. And, and you know, you if you look at the red and blue map, yes, we have swing states, and sometimes those swing states change sort of on the borders and margins, but you still are left with these huge swaths of American a life or American geography that are thoroughly red and thoroughly blue and have increasingly distinct political and religious and social cultures. And so starting from that and, and an increasing inability to um, an increasing amounts of sort of extreme views within those big geographic clusters. So basically what I did is I just pushed the gas uh, a little bit on these trends, say five or 10 years out. And my, my thesis, if you go back to the 1861 and 1776 is where things really touched off is when this geographically contiguous group of people who had the distinct culture began to feel not only was the culture under political threat, but the culture was under violent threat. And, you know, the quartering of British troops, the raids on surrounding countrysides in in um, Massachusetts. So um, so for good in 1776, the colonists said no more for evil in 1861. The Confederates said no more. But the the commonality was, are there violent threats in addition to cultural and political threats to our way of life? And what I did in my both my Texit and my Cal exit scenario was say, what happens if you ratchet up just a little bit that sense of violent threat and you overlay it with a political class that's not up to the moment? And and what are some of the logical ways that that can spiral out of control that are easily foreseeable? <laughs> and that was the whole heart of it because I, 
I've talked about polarization for a while and people would always ask me, how could it happen? So the middle chapters of the book are my answer to how could it happen? And really all it takes is some ratcheting up of the sense of danger combined with foolish blundering and you and opportunism. And one of the folks who read the Cal exit scenario, and I don't want to give away too much because those, those are really, in my view, kind of the make or break chapters of the book. You either find it chilling or far-fetched. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I think was central to the Cal exit scenario was this idea, if you had an opportunistic right-wing leadership in Washington that says, wait a minute, if we let those guys just leave us on the West Coast, we'll run things like forever, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like this is our country then. This is our country. And, and, um, and we don't like those people anyway. And so sort of this opportunistic look that combines this sort of threat of violence, combines sort of social and political hysteria amplified by social media combined with blundering and opportunism. And if you think that's combining a lot of negative trends at once, welcome to world history. <laughs> I'm curious about the role of geography in this because there's there's pretty robust evidence that the red versus blue split, like whether an, a given area votes Republican or Democrat, maps almost perfectly to population density. That when population density give, gets above a certain level, it flips to blue, even in the reddest of red states. And so that would seem that it's not – we don't have red states that would secede. We just have rural states versus urban states. But the country is becoming – and this is you know a long-term trend line – the country is becoming more urban. And even the, the red states are becoming more urban as the cities in them grow. And so would that counter this trend, I suppose, that, that eventually you know the country becomes almost all urban and so – everywhere ends up looking like those blue states with just, you know, a rural minority that doesn't have enough population in a given state to do much of anything. But that would assume that. So um, let, let's look at 1861, for example. That thesis, which I think is a very sound thesis, was exactly the thesis in mind of a lot of the Confederates before they seceded, because once the election of 1860 happened, they realized they had tipped over into inexorable uh, and that the fading of slave power in a United States of America was inexorable. There was nothing they could. I mean, I think that was sort of like the, the 18 election of 1860 said, Oh, wait a minute. If we spin this out, we're the losers. We're the losers now and forever. So we can't have that buy. And, and so I think that one of the threats, so I put it, I was, I did a podcast with Ezra Klein and I said, if I had to lay out the main concerns of our competing sides, it, on the left, their big concern is minoritarian rule. So the last there's only been one Republican to win a prime uh, uh, majority of the popular vote since 1988, and that was Bush in 04 with a super super close uh, popular vote in electoral college victory. Um, the best chance that Trump has to win in 2020 will be a, another multi-million vote loss in the popular vote, which would then be three of the last four GOP elections. Um, the increasing way in which the urban-rural divide is happening, the, the way in which the urban-rural divide is happening means that we'll soon reach a point where about 70% of the Senate is selected by about 30% of the population. And so... The left really fears, I think, minoritarian governance. Well, the right really fears majoritarian tyranny. And my concern is if the stakes rise sufficiently, people will not want to live. There will be a, a 1861 style. I don't think the democratic process is going to protect us anymore. We have to consider extreme measures. Uh, but, but yeah, that... What you're outlining as I think is a demographic reality, all other things being equal, is one of the right's central challenges between for now and the next 30, 40 years. But my my supposition is that when you still have conservative supermajority states and you do have a number, I live in one of them. I mean, this is Tennessee's a we have three big cities, big being relative, Knoxville, Nashville, Memphis, and honorable shout out mention to Chattanooga. But we're supermajority red. We're absolutely, and we're going to be supermajority red for the foreseeable future. 
And what happens when the collection of supermajority red states says this sort of inexorable force is going to threaten our way of life? And what do, what do we do about it? Do we just accept it or do we do something about it? And and so, yeah, I, I totally see what you're saying. But that was the that was, the, in fact, one of the precipitating uh, problems in 1860, 1861, is you had this, these Confederates who said, "Uh oh, handwriting's on the wall. As a libertarian constitutional scholar, it's sort of requisite on me to, uh, you know, have some appreciation for the anti-federalists, and I do. Uh, um, I sometimes go back and forth on whether or not I would have actually signed the Constitution at the time. But many of the critiques that came from the anti-federalists about the Constitution was that it was centralizing, and specifically that it was centralizing over a a huge and diverse country that would one day be, you know, even bigger and more diverse with too many, with too much, too much power over these people's lives in a central government. Now, a lot of that came from kind of the Montesquieu small republic thing, but you read some of that stuff now and it seems quite prescient. If America did split up into say five different regional countries, um, and then, you know, after there would be a lot of stress and some violence and some difficulties. But after that kind of settled down and we decided to basically sign a new Articles of Confederation, uh, uniting these countries into the common defense and our common background as Americans, which wouldn't totally go away, uh, but, but not dealing in the internal governance of, of these other, these other nations. So you weren't meddling. Would that be the worst thing if that <laughs> happened? I, it would be a bad thing. I don't know that it would be the worst thing. And I think what you're saying is sort of like something along the lines of an EU style arrangement. Um, sounds a lot. It sounds a lot like a sort of an EU style. E EU with actual representation and, you know, not, not a fake government, but yeah, something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Something that echoes of that. Uh, here's why I think that would be bad. Um, so I, if you look at what is the fundamental core American social compact, um, I think of it as the aspirational words of the De Declaration of Independence operationalized through the Bill of Rights, the Civil War Amendments, and and the U.S. Constitu U.S. Constitution more broadly, but the Bill of Rights and the Civil War Amendments more specifically, which say that there is should be a, a society that exists that is dedicated to the preservation of liberty and specifically life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How do you do that? That's a grand sweeping aspiration. You do that in actuality through the spill of rights through the civil war amendments and as as far as it as far as formulations of government for human flourishing in my mind that is the mo that's the most superior formulation it is the superior formulation for human flourishing that the very flawed mind of man has been able to to uh craft <laughs> and that a loss of a country dedicated to those principles quite specifically dedicated to those principles would be an immense loss to the people of that country as well as a loss to the world. And so I think that, and that one of the reasons why uh, in the solution sections of the book is I call us to rediscover the bill of rights is I feel like that's also rediscovering the best of the essence of the American political experiment. And it's hard for me to see a fracture and especially under the terms of the fracture, a lot of it would be over disagreement about fundamental human liberties. And it's very easy to imagine that amongst, say, the four to five or three or whatever different kind of republics you could find, you would find much less you, they, they, their political variation uh, would be quite I think would be quite significant Um and enhanced by the fact that in the res uh, the results of a big wrenching change would be a lot of mass migration of people moving towards more hospitable territory, which would mean like a retrenching and, a, and in increased extremism in these new republics. So I think that would that loss of a united American republic dedicated to these sort of fundamental human values would be an immense loss and. And not just over and above the chaos of it, the potential violence of it. And then, you know, I know a lot of folks don't really like to think outside of our borders, but I think the global reverberations would be extraordinary and in many ways just extraordinarily bad. Um, and so I think that both from a principled standpoint 
about what this country is supposed to be and a pragmatic standpoint about the benefit to human flourishing, peace and prosperity of our continued unity, it's a bad, bad idea. We're recording this just over a month from a presidential election that is, no matter the result, likely to tear the country apart even more. Um, and so much of the problem that you've articulated is is cultural, but there's also structural, institutional, which means that it's hard to get a handle on how to avoid this scenario that you've just described to us and said, you know, is one that we ought to try to avoid. So how do we, in the near term, over the next four to eight years, say, begin to move things back in a better direction? Is there a way to do it that doesn't involve, say, like, you know, unrealistic expectations of institutional reform or yeah. everybody deciding to be nice to each other on Twitter all of a sudden? <laughs> you mean the the kumbaya plan is not going to be the... Yes. Yeah. No, I think, you know, first, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I, I think we're going to face greater misery before we as a culture, wake up to the need for real change. And my hope is that, and I pray that, that greater mi misery does not result in catastrophic, um, in, in catastrophic changes before we sort of wake up to the reality of the problem or a catastrophic crisis. But you're right. I mean, we're walking into 2020 and I feel like depending on how close this election is and, and all of the uncertainties with mail-in ballots, it almost feels like you're on the deck of the Titanic and it's broad daylight and you see the iceberg <laughs> and you're like, uh, move, change course, change course, change course. But we keep on steaming right on. And so here, here's what I think. I think that there is a, a necessity to formulate an alternative idea that an immiserated American people can latch on to as an alternative to the present um, ever escalating political combat. And so, you know, right now, both parties are are bought into escalation. I would say the GOP more so than the Democrats at the moment. I mean, the Democrats sort of quite self-consciously chose to nominate arguably the most moderate of all of their leading contenders to sail into the election, uh, whereas President Trump isn't, won't even, you know, alienate him. He won't even really distance himself much from Q. <laughs> so, the the parties are not walking into the election with an ex equivalent commitment to extremism at the moment. But um, as of right now, what we're facing is uh, an increasing commitment on particular on the part of the bases of the parties to escalation. Uh, and that commitment to escalation is carrying with it real costs in the rest of the body politic. And the, the, the more in common folks, I, I cite some of their research in, in the uh, book, have a formulation for those people who are not on the basis of the parties, and they call them the exhausted majority. And the interesting thing about the exhausted majority is it's not a big, moderate political coalition. I mean, ideologically, we're, we're dividing a great deal, but they're exhausted with everything, with the process, with the nature of politics are just worn out by it. And the problem you have right now in this country is that the operative word in the phrase exhausted majority is exhausted and not majority. And I think that there is a latent power there of this exhausted majority if it tries to wake up. And that's where I think formulating a classical liberal pluralistic vision for a unified America that de-escalates national politics and escalates commitment to the Bill of Rights and self-governance is the is a path forward. Uh, it's interesting. A few times in the book, uh, you refer to, as, as you pointed out, in many ways, the GOP has moved, has pushed against that classical liberal model or parts of the GOP and different thinkers. And the, and the, the domination narrative has been preferred to the pluralism narrative, which which 
came out in your famous altercation with Sora Amari uh, in the Against David Frenchism essay. But the, the way you characterized it, I thought was interesting near the end of the book where what that entire debate was, was, quote, a New York-based right-wing writer was so infuriated by the thought of a drag queen story hour taking place in a library on the opposite side of the continent in Sacramento, California, that he used that fact of the scheduled story hour to declare that my commitment to pluralism was inadequate to meet the challenge of the times, uh, which is which is this debate now in the right wing um did that surprise you that 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 just maybe it wasn't sudden if you were paying attention but the kind of quick intellectualizing of essentially this domination conservative national conservatism thing and a complete jettisoning of any alternative i I guess that's just maybe if you're playing some sort of mutually assured destruction i guess that's one piece you might play but you kind of hoped for more out of conservatives perhaps and didn't get it or maybe maybe we never should have hoped for much out of some conservatives yeah Well, I think the only thing that was surprising about that was that somehow I became like the, the face of the problem <laughs> of the, you know, of the alleged problematic commitment to classical liberalism. That was surprising to be, you know, so so directly put in the middle of those crosshairs. But the fact that classical liberalism in the cro- was in the crosshairs was not surprising at all because, um, you know, Steve Bannon – was really quite explicitly sort of aiming more towards a right-wing Europe, uh, European model of the right, big government, generous welfare state, wrapping yourself in nationalistic and religious themes, um, which bore not much resemblance at all to sort of the Reagan vision of the GOP that had, had dominated for so many years. And then the outright just absolute scorn for sort of this fusionism concept or and then the increasing derision towards um, a what people kept calling economic libertarianism, but <laughs> almost every libertarian I know would say, "I didn't." Yeah, we know won we were, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> you, I, did, I didn't know didn't, I won. We won until we were told. Yes, I mean, I, I, I no no libertarian vision of victory that I'm aware of includes a code of federal regulations quite so large. Yes, I agree um, with that. But you know, and what they were calling economic libertarianism wasn't. In reality, economic libertarianism, it was a, uh, a, a GOP economic philosophy to that, to the extent that it was, it, that was putting its thumb sort of gently on maybe a fewer regulate regulations or maybe slowing the growth of the regulatory state. That's not economic libertarianism. But anyway, I began to see this sort of derisive approach to economic libertarianism, uh, um, embrace of central planning, uh, increased, uh, an actual, um, shaky commitment to free speech, um, more shaky than I'd ever seen before, although they would never admit it. Um, but sort of the beginning to emerge the same kind of cancel culture on the right that I've seen on the left. Uh, so it wasn't surprising that this argument happened. The only thing that was surprising is that it really got touched off by a drag queen story hour and that I was somehow responsible for that. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you want California to pass a single payer healthcare system? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So one of the reasons why um, I, I wrote I wrote that chapter and the original title of it before it got kind of moderated was single payer health care in California could save America, <laughs> which is a pretty bold, maybe hyperbolic statement. But one of the problems with federalism is that there, that it is usually a principle. It is usually a tactic and not a principle. So in other words, the dominant political party sees no virtue in federalism. The party out of power often suddenly rediscovers love for federalism. So what you're, but, you know, as a matter of sort of political philosophy, the progressive movement has sort of been the most kind of side-eyed about progressivism because they want the big sweeping national political change for the sake of social justice or, you know, equality, et cetera. And so, what I was trying to do was show that if federalism is applied logically and applied consistently and applied according to a better, healthier version of it, that progressives could perhaps gain some very meaningful governmental uh, – they, they could have some very meaningful advances that they would maybe never, ever get absent a commitment to federalism. If your view is it's sort of like our national health plan or nothing – then the answer is mostly going to be nothing because we're closely enough divided to where one side or the other can block these truly sweeping reforms. 
But the interesting thing is if California enacted single-payer health care, not only would a very, very large, very wealthy progressive state be able to fashion the sort of political community that they want to have according to their values, which is an important principle of self-governance, that the very act of having that health care system would require Congress to grant them waivers from major federal programs that by implication would allow for other states to engage in their own experimentation according to their own political community's values along some of these really uh, in, in some of the most meaningful areas of American governance, including health and welfare, et cetera. And so my view was that um, if California enacted something that was sweeping according to its values that required congressional consent, that not only would you advance the fundamental goal of self-governance in that state, you would also facilitate self-governance in the 49 other states. And it would break that federalist logjam because one of the core realities of federalism in the U.S. right now is that the financial power rests with the federal government. And so long as that financial power, there's such a hammerlock on the on these trillions of dollars, then federalism will be nibbling at the edges. But a that California approach would break some of that hammerlock, return some of those funds to the state. And at that point we could then, you know, we'd be we'd be cooking with gas and we could start to see some real self self-governance in this country. But would that end up with dramatically different decisions in the different states because just just a moment ago we were talking about how the american right has largely abandoned the the free market um and open market principles of say reagan conservatism in favor of economic populism which is awfully similar to economic progressivism um and and so you know it used to be that there was the the left and the right were different on social issues and different on economic issues and now it increasingly looks like the left and the right are basically different on social issues it's you know they they have largely the same economic policies just one wants to put immigrants in cages and the other doesn't um and and so in that case i can imagine if california passes single payer we're just going to get you know say single payer in all of the red states too because they're totally on board with big government as well well, I see. I I would dispute that because I think the national GOP and the state GOPs are are different. And in fact, state level GOPs are in many ways much healthier, much more intellectually vibrant, and not nearly as excited by this nationalist populism. Which, you know, it's going to be very interesting to me, y'all, if if Trump loses a, a clear loss. Um, in 2020, because one of the interesting things, and my colleague Jonah Goldberg has has written about this, is that this nationalist wave is really mainly um a bunch of people who meet in moderate sized hotel conference rooms in D.C. and the tr the true populism is centered around the person of Donald Trump not around a big rethink of our of our economic policies. What's happening is you have a small group of right-wing intellectuals who are trying to put an intellectual, endearing intellectual frame around Trump um, that is something fundamentally different. But I guarantee you, outside of those people who watch Tucker every night or who follow some of the, you know, these conservative intellectual wars, the rank-and-file conservative in this country their primary motivation may be anti-left, but their secondary motivation still looks a lot more like the conservatism that I grew up with than this sort of European right vision. And so if Trump is defeated, then I think at that point, all bets are off on what the GOP looks like intellectually and, ide and ideologically after Trump. If it's a super narrow defeat, then the populace will just claim like the never Trumpers stabbed us in the back and try to run it back again. But um, but I think there's a lot more uncertainty about the GOP than a lot of people realize and that the national pop and also because the nationalist populists tend to punch above their weight on Twitter. Um, there's, I think, a false a, a lot of false assumptions about their underlying strength. So you as you pointed out, you're 
not terribly optimistic in the near run, which I would share that view and that we kind of would need to get to a point where there's a detente where it's just like we can't fight each other anymore and we do something like a California single payer or something and you endorse the federalism as a principle. But also your book is a big call for like just being better people. <laughs> and there's one quote I want to read in your in the in the uh, conclusion. It is increasingly clear now that there are two culture wars in American life. Yes, there there is the right left culture war that we're long familiar with, but there's now an even deeper struggle between decency and indecency. I thought that was a great point, but if you want to maybe expound a little bit, yeah. So um, at the at the risk of sort of oversimplifying it, what we essentially have is we have an old. The old culture war, which would be we're fighting over very important issues within a classical liberal framework. In other words, we've agreed upon the rules of the game, so to speak. We may disagree on exactly how big the First Amendment should be, you know, how how widely or broadly it should be interpreted. But we broadly agree on free speech or we may disagree on all the full elements of due process, but we broadly agree on due process. I mean, like there. So we're all fighting for certain policy issues within a game where the rules are agreed upon. And including rules about, to a greater or lesser degree, about how you treat other human beings. Um, if you have a political opponent and you disagree with them, should you should you treat them with a modicum of dignity and respect, or should you try to destroy them as human beings and ruin their public reputation and drive them out of their careers? And what we're beginning to see is a disagreement on the classical liberal structure itself. That, in other words, if I don't win under the current structure. That means the structure is illegitimate, um, that my cause is so just that it's the, it is imperative that I win. And what is optional is this governmental structure through which I win. And that is a deep threat, I think, to the American uh, constitutional structure itself. And then along with that is a be- corresponding belief that my political opponents not only are wrong, but there's something fundamentally morally defective about them such that their presence working beside me in my company is intolerable. Their presence uh, begin, you know, to have schools in my community is intolerable. Their presence in my social media feed is intolerable. And so therefore, um, there is a, a, a push towards not a, not a even really a defeat of person in political um, you know, in fair political combat, but a destruction of a person to remove them from the polity. And those that greater level of commitment to destruction combined with a lack of commitment to classical liberalism means that we're really scrambling a lot of our lines right now. So, for example, I feel far more connected to somebody who's a, a left liberal than I do to a right authoritarian. Because while I might agree with somebody on the right on, say, abortion, um, which is vitally, you know, a, a hugely important issue, I'm not going to destroy the constitutional structure of the United States of America or try to destroy um, human beings on the other side, either, you know, either by, you know, wrecking their ability to earn a living, wrecking their ability to make an argument in the public square. And so, therefore, what you know what we have here is a a cultural conflict where it's in classical liberalism versus authoritarianism and decency versus indecency and that is overlaying the whole thing Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.